0: Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPs and Board
1: of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder, these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high
0: yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week, Andrew?
1: This week, we're talking about fluorescein angiography and endocyanine green angiography. You want to do your disclaimer thing?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, I should. Yeah, so um, both of these are lovely imaging techniques. Uh, We're going to talk more about fluorescein for people who are you know newer in ophthalmology. That's the one that's uh, far more frequently used. But though I do personally love ICG angiography, as anyone who knows me clinically knows, I love it to death. But um, a disclaimer: we are talking about imaging. On an audio format without the ability to show you any images in this format. So, um, Angie, do you think we can link pictures of like standard ICGs on the website or something? We can we do that?
1: Do, do we have the technology? Um, yeah, I can. I'll see what I can do about it. Or,
0: or one can look at it. Well, we'll. we'll so, you know, we're not gonna like. You're not gonna be able to learn to interpret an image from this podcast. But we hope that this will help you get understand the principles of what you're looking for on FA and ICG, and then your wonderful mentors, wherever you are, can help you figure out, can actually hone your skills and interpretation. So, um, Andrew, do you know the story of how fluorescein angiography was actually uh, invented?
1: I do not, and I wanted to wait until you told the rest of our audience and me.
0: Yeah, it's like... A, <laughs> It's like a wild story. It's pretty well documented. So if you just Google like history of fluoresceinian geography, you can can hear the whole thing. But the the quick bit is it was discovered actually by two medical students. So if you're a med student or like a junior resident out there, you could make a discovery that changes the face of whatever field you're like going into. So one of them, his name was Harold Novotny. He actually ended up going into psychiatry. And the other was David Alvis, who ended up becoming a comprehensive ophthalmologist. Though from what I've read, he's actually never ordered a fluorescein angiography during his whole career. So, like, these are not people who are like specifically interested in like retina or or imaging or any, anything like that. How they met is Novotny. And if if Dr. Novotny and Alvis are listening to this and they want to correct anything, please please let us know. But from from what I understand. Novotny was working two jobs already as like a first year or second year med student, and he needed another job. So you know he talked to his chair about like, oh, is there like a job that we can like you know like I can do or whatever? And then he heard about the chair. His name was Dr. Hickam. He heard about Hickam's lab, which looked at like pulmonary oxygenation. So he begged and pleaded for a job because he, needed, he honestly it sounds like he just needed the money. And eventually, he you know Hickam uh, let him work in his lab, and then. Alvis, Novotny's partner, it sounds like was basically in his last year of med school and just needed a like chill research block to to, like go into, you know, to finish off his year. So, you know, Novotny had like a lot of tasks to do with looking at oxygenation and like the pulmonary vasculature and such. And, uh, you know, Hickam just arbitrarily got a fundus camera because he thought, oh, well, you know, maybe we can image, you know, oxygenation using this thing. So Novotny and Alvis were playing with this camera and they noticed that when they looked at certain wavelengths in the camera, the the natural lens, and I think it was like mice or or it might've been like, you know, each other's eye gave off certain wavelengths and they thought, oh, huh, this is kind of weird. You know, you can see it with this with this camera but you know like otherwise you normally don't see it like what is this that's what Novotny asked and Alvis just he knew a little bit about ophthalmology at that point already and then you know I think he had a bit of like a chemistry background so he said oh I bet that because the lens is crystalline that it's fluorescing so again this had nothing to do with like the retina or anything at that point they were just like musing on how oh, I wonder why the lens is like a funny color when you look at it with this camera in a specific way so then that made Nevarkney think, huh, I wonder what would happen if you used fluorescein because he knew about f- fluorescein dye to try to like look at the, you know, retinal vasculature because that's sort of what Hickam's lab was trying to do." So he went to Hickam and said, "Hey, I got this interesting idea. What if we use fluorescein dye to try to look at the, you know, retinal vasculature?" And then Hickam said, "That's that's not what my lab's about. We're, we're like, we're pulmonologists. Uh, can you work on those things that you were assigned? So he still had, so Novotny still had like multiple day jobs working on like pulmonology, but he thought this idea was interesting enough that he spent a lot of time with Alvis to try to figure this out. And they had no idea that a few years prior, some researchers at Stanford actually had like a very similar idea. And they tried to do it in cats. But the problem was in cats, the vasculature, the, the time from die to eye is much quicker. It's only like two seconds. And as we'll talk about in humans, it's like 10 seconds because, you know, most humans are bigger than cats. And, <laughs> and so, like, it was a lot harder mechanically doing cats. So they just kind of abandoned the, um you, you know, they thought like, oh, this is cool. But like, you know, you're not going to get anything useful out of it because the camera technology wasn't good enough then to do it with cats. So, but Nivon <laughs> and Alvis had no idea that. People had already declared that this really probably wouldn't be practical. So they kept playing with it. And then they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what filters can you use to make fluorescein light up, you know, appropriately in, in a retinal camera. And, you know, they, they spent a lot of time and they 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 like just they shoved in these lenses into the fancy, expensive camera that Hickam bought for their lab. And <laughs> Hickam apparently came back the weekend after they shoved these filters, they kind of just jury-rigged the filters that fit in this camera. And he was like furious, you know, he was like, Well, Dude, this this camera is like, you know, a quadrillion dollars in nineteen fifties money. What are you guys doing? But then they explained their, their idea. They're like, hey, I think we really can like, you know, do something with this. They so said, fine, whatever. Just like buy enough fluorescein if you want to keep doing it. That we'll like be able to do it. And so they bought like a, a crap ton of fluorescein, and then ultimately through another stroke of serendipity their camera could capture things like every like 10 seconds. It was like 10 or 12 seconds or so, which also turns out to be the uh, die to eye time for human beings. So the Novotny just put some fluorescein in Alvis's arm and then took a picture. And that was the first fluorescein angiogram picture that was ever taken. And then together they worked on it. They developed, you know, um, you know, the manuscript and made it like super high detail because Hickam's goal was to make it so anyone could, could replicate the results, but it seems like he was a pretty like reasonable person because even though it was like done in his lab with his money and his equipment, he didn't want to be an author because like, you know, he didn't assign any of this. And that's how fluorescent angiography was born. Through <laughs> just a bunch of like weird coincidences and honestly, like blissful ignorance on Novotny and Alvis's part that people had already tried it and failed. And, you know, this was a guy who's like applied to psychiatry and someone, you know, who was just kind of like coasting in his last year of med school. And and uh, and they made one of the most used, probably until OCT was invented, the, the most used retinal imaging technique in like the world. So that's how all of this crazy stuff was born.
1: All these different <laughs> stories that make you feel even better about what you're doing with your life, right?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> like the lit review I wrote as a med student seems a little bit less impressive now. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, if you want to go around, like, I'm a little glad now that you're a few states away from me, so you don't try sticking anything in my arm just for. (laughs) Oh man, the
0: experimentation! Oh (laughs) Oh, no, (laughs) we we hadn't thought of just an audio format. Oh man, you
1: would
0: have been (laughs) no. Oh man. Okay, so let's talk about how fluorescein angiography actually works. So, okay, one thing I've heard, uh, and not to call anyone up, I've heard a number of people call fluorescein like a, a, a quote vegetable dye. It's actually not. A vegetable dye, It was its form was inspired by a fluorescent dye that bacteria make. But I think the confusion whether fluorescein is a vegetable dye is, well, one, it's nice to tell patients who are just putting a vegetable dye in their system, so it seems nicer, but it's, it's not really. And two, you know, in um, Chicago, when they try to make the, the river in Chicago, what's the river's name in Chicago?
1: Do you know? uh, I don't remember, but you're talking well, about the Saint Patrick's Day. Thing. The
0: Saint Patrick's thing, yeah, day thing, yeah. They they used to use fluorescein dye to turn that green, you know, for Saint Patrick's Day, and then because environmentalists like whoa, 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 there's <laughs> like fish and stuff that live in there. They they switched it to a vegetable dye that would turn it green. So I think that maybe was some of more like the historical confusion of what is like fluorescein, but it's it's a synthetic organic compound that uh, was inspired by a bacterial dye. That we now use for a lot of medical purposes, especially in ophthalmology. So fluorescein, it's you know it's a dye. Well, hopefully you've seen it at some point where you know it's um, this, this yellow green stuff when it's in solution, and when you shy, shine a blue light at it or 490 nanometer light, it spits out green light, and it does that by fluorescence, where it absorbs light and then it its energy gets lowered and emits a it strongly emits a, a different wavelength. You know, that's how fluorescent works. And you go so from how,
1: 490 nanometers to 520 nanometers, so the Energy is actually decreasing, the frequency is getting a little longer.
0: Right, the wavelength is getting a little bit longer, right. Right, right, right. So, um, so how the camera has to work, it shines this bright light, and they put a filter in front of it that only allows blue out. So you're basically shining a blue light into the eye. And then in the camera part, they put a filter that only allows green through. So the idea is you're only shining blue light into the eye, and then the eye will reflect back blue, because you're shining blue into the eye. It also will emit green, because that's what fluorescing does. So you'll have blue and green light coming back to the camera. So there's another filter over the camera that blocks the blue, so you only get green. That's the idea. There are some issues one can run into that, where... You know, there might be if the filters are not precisely correct in their orientation and um, in, in what they filter, then you can get blue light back, which can make a very confusing looking picture. And that's called pseudo fluorescence. But that's as far as I'll we'll get into that, because with modern filters and the, the cameras that we use nowadays, it doesn't come up so much. But just be aware that if everything looks like it fluoresces, then maybe because there's an issue with the filters. And that's all I say about flu- pseudo fluorescence. Okay, so that's the idea of how fluorescent angiography works. Andrew. Can you remind us of the uh, blood supply to the retina so that we can know what we're actually looking at with fluorescein angiography? Uh, yeah, sure.
1: So as Ben alludes to, and you all know by now, the retina does have blood supply from two sources. Uh, all the retinal arteries come in from the central retinal artery, and then also the deeper retina gets fed to some extent by the choroidal circulation also. So if you inject fluorescein into somebody's arm, it's going to eventually migrate its way through both. But you can't actually see the fluorescein in the choroidal circulation usually, because all this pigmented retinal pigment epithelium on top of it is blocking. Thankfully, the fluorescein doesn't shine through all that pigment
0: very well. Yeah, it does a little bit, but it's like having it's like looking at a light through a T-shirt. You know, you can see it, but you won't see it like very clearly. So, there will be like a nice glow from it.
1: Um, even if even if you kind of did see it more distinctly, it wouldn't be that useful because the choroid vessels are pretty leaky actually. The fluorescein stays where it is so long as the blood ocular barrier is intact, but that blood ocular barrier doesn't really exist in choroidal vasculature. So, right. That's right why over. when we're looking at choroidal imaging, we more talk about ICG rather than FA. Oh, spoilers for the second half of the episode. I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. i sorry. <laughs> I like I'm to joking. place things I'm in context.
0: T- I know. I know. No, no. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That's, that, that that gets to the point of ICG. So right, right. Right. So fluorescein is a small molecule, and the retinal vessels don't leak it. They're very, you know, have very nice tight junctions and such made by. The um, pericytes and um, endothelial cells within it, but the choroidal vessel—it doesn't matter. You know, if the choroidal vessels leak, that's actually good because it can like easily leak this nutrition that needs to supply to the RPE and the outer retina and everything. Uh, and I think it's important, to, especially if you're early on, to remember that the RPE is in the way of the choroidal vessels because it it informs a lot of what you're seeing on anatomy. Especially early on, it's easy to think that the retina is this kind of orange, red, orange. You know, membrane because that's what we see when we're doing fundoscopy. Remember, that's the, that's the color of the choroid. That's the background of the choroid that you're seeing through this kind of filter that is the RPE, and the retina itself is just clear. You know, so I think remembering that anatomy, and um, you know, you can prove that to yourself by looking at anyone with albinism where in there, their RP, you know, is basically uh, pigmentless. So you can see both the choroidal and retinal vasculature at the same time. And I think that really shows you like what you're not normally seeing in someone, but is, uh, you know, always hidden under plain sight. Okay. Um, So that's the anatomy. So we talked a bit about, you know, in that story about what we're looking for with, well, about the transit times.
1: Before you before you go to the transit time, I wasn't very clear about the uh sorry, I wasn't clear about sourcing both compartments of the dual blood supply. The retina gets its supply from the central retinal artery, which is a derivative off the ophthalmic artery. The choroid also gets its stuff from the posterior ciliary arteries instead. Right. But the posterior ciliaries are also derivatives off that same ophthalmic artery.
0: Right. It's the first exit off the Yeah, that's exit one off the highway. And this uh, central retinal artery is exit two off the highway. So it's a little bit further down the line. Okay. So, uh, you know, I think a fluorescein angiography can seem pretty confusing. And, you know, it seems like there's like so many different things to know about it. We're going to try to break it down so that you only need to know seven things to understand fluorescein angiography. So, one of those things is the transit times, and there's a bunch of different like numbers to know, but we'll try to break it down to the important ones. And then there's all you're looking for with fluorescein angiography, like clinically, is areas of hyperfluorescence and hypofluorescence. And there's only f- six things total that can cause hyper and hypofluorescence. So if you know those six things, then you can inter- interpret any pathological lesion that you see in fluorescein angiography.
1: Okay. You make it sound so easy. <laughs>
0: yeah, let's see if we can actually make it that easy. So transit times. Part of the reason I wanted to tell that story in the beginning is to help you kind of remember what the transit times are for arm to eye, and,
1: and for the difference between a human and a cat. And a
0: human, and a cat. Yeah. So <laughs> Not if that on OCAP need to know that. they ask you, well, I mean, who knows if on OCAP they ask you, hey, what's, a, what's oh the what's the paw gosh. to paw to eye time for a cat? <laughs> That's apparently about two seconds. For a human, it's about 10 seconds, so between 8 to 12 seconds to get from arm to eye. And that's to get the ophthalmic artery. So that's not like the retinal artery or whatever. And Andrew, what was the first exit off the artery, uh, well, off the highway of the ophthalmic artery again?
1: Uh, First exit, that's your posterior ciliary
0: artery. Right. So that will fill. So at 10 seconds, you'll expect to see some choroidal circulation filling. And remember, the choroidal vasculature is hidden underneath the RPE. So it will just look like this kind of soft glow. You won't see vessels in detail, but the whole thing will glow maybe in kind of lobules because the choroid is organized in lobules. But that's where a choroidal anatomy lecture. And so it fills first because it has an anatomically shorter path. And then after that, just a few seconds later, I think it's just important to know it's a few seconds. It's, you know, the textbook says one to five, but a few seconds later, then the retinal arteries will fill. So it's like 10 seconds for the choroidal vasculature to fill, then like 11 to 15 for the retinal arteries to fill. But if you remember 10, just remember a few seconds later, that should be enough to get you by, you know, in clinic and everything. And so that's for retinal arteries. And then the veins will fill. If you look at a Angiography, you'll see that the veins fill in an interesting pattern. That is that the walls of the veins will fill first. And that's to do some due to something called laminar flow, where flow through the center of some kind of lumen. So flow through the center of a straw is faster than flow around the sides of a straw. You know, I'm trying to think, is there a way that like applies in real life that can make it easier to remember? Like a, what what
1: um, it's like a, a water faucet, slide. I think. <coughs> yeah. It's not really like the right that, physics. Just imagine yeah. the guy shooting down the water tube is the stuff in yeah, the middle of faster. the tube. Right. That's right, right, technically, right. you don't have the same mass as the water on the sides, but whatever. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like simpler, but you know, he's like 78% water. And, uh, <laughs> okay. So then, so then from from that point, so you'll see the sides of the vein filling. And then at 30 seconds is when you have the peak of Venus filling. Um, how important is it to know that? I mean, you know, you. You might want to look for but 30 seconds is where the peak of Venus filling should be. And then like three to five minutes later is when the fluorescein will really start to wash out of the system. So you won't have like no fluorescence, but that's when about roughly washes out. And I think the reason it's important to know that is that's usually how long you need to just do a fluorescein angiography, you know, beyond five minutes, sometimes you'll get things of value, but usually like... You, you know you might see like you know late staining after five minutes, but usually if you can get up to five minutes, that's enough, unless you have some special reason. And at ten minutes, almost all the fluorescein will be gone. So if you're trying to tell a patient like oh how, roughly how long, then you know three to five minutes is usually enough. Though if you like you don't know, want to do kind of advanced things, you're looking at, then you might want to do it for longer.
1: Okay, and I I will say like um I used to I'll admit I used to think like what's the point of Committing these times to memory. Cause, like, if I'm actually doing it, I'll see it on the timeline of the study report. Or, you know, the other reason, answer pimp questions. But when I'm off the <laughs> retina rotation, I don't have terrible motivation to have that in my belt. But when it really comes useful, I think, is in noticing when these things aren't happening by the time they should. So maybe I... some pathologies that might include that could even be like carotid blockages. Or something. Mm-hmm. It's not like the software tells you, okay, this is the 10 second mark. This is where it should have happened. It doesn't. It just. It's a Maybe timeline. Maybe it should. Maybe it should. Yeah. Maybe should talk to the company. Make yeah. yourself some dollars.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how. Yeah. <laughs> once, <laughs> once the podcast money runs out. No, that's, that's the, not funny. We, no, what
1: podcast money? Yeah, I know.
0: I know. It's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, like you as, as a side note, paid for this? what's up? <laughs> <I>, I'm <laughs> getting paid. We're, we're, you're not getting the paycheck. <laughs> Oops. I shouldn't have told you. Um, yeah. And, like these, uh, just by the way, these numbers, you know, they can vary like in children. Obviously, they're, they're more a cat, closer to a cat size. <laughs> so their transit times will be like different than, you know, like an adult or someone who's taller. Do or, people or do
1: FAs on kids?
0: You can. I mean, sometimes you do them under um, anesthesia. If you're suspecting they have like coats or something, then it might yeah. be that, that might be a reason to do it. So yeah, you can do that on my children. So the things will be different there. But yeah, the, honestly, if you're going to come up with one transit time to remember, it's probably the 10 seconds eight, eight, or eight to 12 seconds um, arm to eye time because that's that's one of the more important transit times to know. Um, And another good time point to try to remember is venous filling, which is a couple seconds after arterial filling, because that can be helpful to help diagnose a retinal vein occlusion, whether it's a branch retinal vein or central retinal vein occlusion. Um, Okay, so now we talk about transit times. There is four types of hyperfluorescence and two types of hypo. What are the four types of hyperfluorescence?
1: The four things are, one, leakage. Two, staining. Three, pooling and for window defects. yeah, And those are just different patterns in which you'll see the dye kind of be present, be very visibly there. Be more Um, present than normal. Yep, more present than they should. And again, if the blood ocular barrier were actually intact, then all you'd see is dye hyperfluorescing the normal retinal circulation, which would be really pretty, but also kind of boring because nothing's going wrong leakage yeah. happens if that blood ocular barrier isn't intact and you see little sprouts or tufts of where they shouldn't be. You see the dye where it shouldn't be. But how does that distinct from staining then, Ben?
0: Yeah, and I think um, so just w- one thing is to be able to tell if something's hyper-hypofluorescent, you have to know what a normal angiogram looks like. So definitely look at them because um, these are just deviations from what a quote normal angiogram looks like. Um, I will answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) I I promise. But I think, you know, I know it's confusing because it seems like a lot of memorization. to know, what's leakage, what's standing, what's pooling, and what's a window defect. Like, it's kind of subtle what the differences are between them. But how, and don't tell your mentors, I said this, okay? Because they won't be mad. They won't be, they'll be mad at me. But really, in general, the point of a fluorescein angiography is to tell is there leakage or not. So, if you have to remember one thing about fluorescent age geography, know what leakage looks like, which we'll tell you. I'll explain to you in a bit, or it well, Andrew kind of already explained. And then, if it's not leakage, then it has to be one of the other things. So, if you know what leakage is, that's like the main thing to really know to interpret an FA. And then, if it's not that leakage, it's one of the other things. So, leakage is where something like Andrew just said is something where it. Um, it looks like something is leaking from a vessel. So it'll grow in size and the borders will grow in size and intensity over time. What they say classically say is you need to have an early and a late image. You can compare them, right? So you can see, is this lesion growing in size and intensity over time? I'll tell you, honestly, usually you can just tell in one cut of a late. And again, don't tell your mentors this. They're going to be really mad because is not like, <laughs> this is not what, like that. The formal teaching is supposed to be, but You'll, you know, if you look at something, a late picture of leakage, you'll see that the borders look really fuzzy and it will look, you know, usually somewhat brighter. So leakage really is kind of fuzzy borders. The other two things, staining and pooling, should have a sharply demarcated border. And the uh, reason for that is staining is when fluorescein gets into some solid structure and those things are drusen and scar. There can be other things like, um, like the sclera will stain actually but that's when dye gets into a solid structure and then just stains that solid structure. So, you know, drusen are well-demarcated things. So basically staining lesions should be the exact shape of the physical structure that you can often see like on fundoscopy or just your color photo, Um, it should fill that exact space. Pooling is very similar, but instead of a solid structure, it's just filling up a liquid structure, some kind of fluid pocket. So, you know, someone who has like central serous chorioretinopathy, it's a classic one. You know, those literally look like little pools, like a like a sw- like a like a little inverted bathtub on on OCT. That will pool. Pooling can take longer to fill, so it may look like it's leaking early because you're kind of leaking into this this swimming pool, but eventually, it'll have a sharply demar- demarcated edge like once it fills up that pool. So kind of early on, it's like if you you know you put like uh, like a food dye into a bucket like into a bowl of water, it'll look like it's leaking first until it fills up the whole bucket and then you and then it will look like you know sharply demarcated uh, edges. Um, okay, so a window defect is where we have to go back to the beginning, and remember that there, you're always seeing choroidal vasculature. And retinal vasculature, when you're looking at an FA, it's just the choroidal vasculature is kind of blocked by like this like black T-shirt that is the RPE. You know, it's like a, it's it's like you're seeing like um like a neon sign under a black T-shirt. Like you're gonna see some glow, but like not that much. So a window defect is when there's a hole in that T-shirt. Then you'll be able to see that neon sign under it much more clearly. And how you can tell, because you know sometimes it. You can imagine, you know, usually um, holes in the T-shirt or um, atrophic lesions in the RPE are pretty well sharply demarcated. So you might think like, oh, maybe it'll be confusing. Is this staining or is it actually like a window defect? The, the answer um, is when the cortical circulation fills. So staining takes a while because it's a retinal vessel that's usually staining a lesion or, or a cortical vessel that's, that's um, letting die into a lesion to cause it to stain, whether it's a drusen or a scar. In a window defect, it's just you're just seeing the choroidal vasculature, and that should be super early, like that 10 second mark, the eight to 12 second mark. That's when you should see that choroidal vasculature through the window defect. So it should be like immediate. So you really have to look at these early shots to see if something's a window defect or not. The main types of window defects you'll see are, quote, holes in the t shirt, where you, um, you know, which is RP atrophy, loss of RP in some area, you know, classically from like macular degeneration, geographic atrophy, and whatnot. Two other weirder ones just to know about for maybe like OCAP purposes is one choroidal folds, such as from hypotony. So if you have folds in the choroid, you can actually see window defect at the peaks of the fold. And the thought behind that is that where the peaks of the fold are, because it's like kind of creased, is the RPE may be thinned. So because it's thinner there, then you can see the choroidal vasculature more readily through it. The other one, which can be kind of confusing, so this one's a little bit important to know about, is in macular holes. So I lied before when we said that there's just a, the RPE pigment is blocking choroidal vasculature from coming through. There's also... Remember, a pigment in the macula, like all the way back in episode, our very first episode, we talked about the macula lutea, and that's because there's xanthophyll pigments in the actual retina of the macula. And that's why, when I say I lied before, when I said the retina is clear, it's clear except in that one spot. Like if you did a total retinal attachment, you'll see this yellow spot right in the center of the retina. So so that is also blocking somewhat. And in a normal fluorescein angiogram, you'll see that the center of fluorescein is always dark. But if you, someone has a macular hole, it may look like they have like a staining lesion in that hole. And if you don't have an OCT for some reason, then it might be like confusing. Like, oh, maybe they have like a juice in there or something. But but really, that's just a window defect because you're missing that normal yellow pigment where the macular hole is. And you're seeing a little bit more of that choroidal glow through, through that. So that's the, like the last type of window defect that's out there. Now, how much does any of this matter I mean you should know these things like especially if you try to refine your ability to interpret confusing retinal imaging for remember it's basically look for leakage or no leakage and don't tell on me okay don't tell I don't want to get I don't want to get banned from like retina meetings okay um so, that's, get so that, that, that's, all that, that's
1: all we need to know about The retina about police plans. are going to come for you
0: Fluorescence. okay so I'm working on my anxiety it's bad enough already Tell me about hypofluorescence, Andrew. What are what types of hypofluorescence are there?
1: <laughs> A little bit easier uh, has been talked about the four different phenotypes of hyperfluorescence. There are only two phenotypes of hypofluorescence that can come from blocking of the dye fluorescing or just the dye not getting there when it should. So that would be hypoperfusion. If the dye is blocked. It's a little bit like the opposite of Ben's interesting t-shirt window defect analogy. Uh, Imagine somebody has a really thick winter coat, I guess, instead of a hole in a (laughs) t-shirt. Shucks. Beats me. I don't know. And why would there be extra blocking or something? Um, Well, depends where it is. If, say, they have something like a vitreous hemorrhage, of course, that would make one kind of outside-the-box sort of blocking. You wouldn't see the dye just because the media is opaque that you're even trying to see through. Uh, but there are also certain retinal diseases where there's an increased amount of pigment, right, Ben? And in particular, I'm thinking of one of the uh, the macular dystrophies that we talked about way back when in a certain episode.
0: Yeah, Yeah, one that causes... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a pun. Yeah, star guards can also cause blocking. So yeah, what is that? Yeah. The
1: dark choroid or something? Yeah, the dark
0: choroid. Yeah. So basically, can't you don't see the normal choroidal glow because there's so much lipofusin or A2E in the retina that, that can block that. Nice so,
1: memory, and I yeah. quizzed you out of nowhere on that. Good job. Oh yeah, I
0: love a retina fellow. I
1: hope. <laughs> <Like> a little <laughs> bit here and there.
0: Um,
1: yeah, but yeah, so
0: yeah, this blocking and then hypoperfusion, and I think one thing to kind of come back to is whenever someone gets whenever you get a fluorescent angiogram always get a color photo with it because yeah. to tell between whether something is blocking or hypoperfusion sometimes you need to know what things look like in the color photo because you know a lot of times you can tell what hyperperfusion is because it follows along some retinal you know some like vasculature like like you know, if you're, it's a branch retinal artery occlusion. You can see like you know a kind of a cutoff point in the retinal artery and it goes beyond that. But sometimes, you know, it may like a vitreous hemorrhage or like an intraretinal hemorrhage can block along a you know a, a vascular pattern and be very confusing. But when you do the look at the color photo, it should be pretty obvious because it'll be blood there or not. So um, always get a color photo to be able to tell between blocking and hypoperfusion. But that's that, and that's. Fluorescene angio- angiography, I mean, I know it we took a while talking about, but half of it was talking about cats. So hopefully it <laughs> wasn't. Um, and there's like a, a lot of different, you know, nuances within fluorescene angiography or like these quote pathognomonic things that you can that you can find, you know, like like all dots and quenching and you know, dark choroid and and a bunch of weird different things. But if you're just learning about fluorescene angiography, if you know these fundamentals, then at least you kind of you know what to look up, right? Like, you're like, huh, it, it looks like things are kind of blocking here, like in the early phase, you can look up early phase blocking and you might find Darkroid yeah. to, to know it's Stargardt. So, you know, this is like the fundamental language and, Everything else will, like uh, most retinal diseases, will have some like pathognomonic finding with, with fluorescein. But like, don't be nervous if you walk away from this and, like, oh, okay, well, now I feel armed to do fluorescein angiography. And then you're like, read about all these, like, you know, late staining of this lesion and like this bird in, you know, in, in birdshot or whatever. This is like the early armamentarium. So you know how to describe things. And when you read what hyperfluorescence is, that you know how to interpret it. Okay. So the side effects of fluorescein angiography, there's not that many. About 5% of people will experience nausea when you put in the fluorescein dye, but that usually doesn't last very long. It lasts like 30 seconds or so. It's more, more commonly happened if someone is young and anxious and if you push in the dye very quickly. If the dye leaks from the vessel and gets under the skin, it can cause necrosis of the skin. Um, that's usually transient and apparently is very painful. If it gets in, if you accidentally put the dye into an artery instead of a vein, then apparently, I've never seen this, but apparently all the dye distal to like that artery will turn like yellow, like their fingernails and stuff would turn yellow or or orangish and and such. Um, And apparently it's like very painful. And then um, it'll take obviously way more time. For that dye to get back to their eye, because it's traveled through the arterial circulation, to the venous circulation, and then back up to the, the back up to the eye. And then, um, obviously, allergic reaction. Someone can have an allergic reaction to fluorescein dye, and that's probably the most like dangerous one. So, um, yeah, that's why every every area that has fluorescein angiography should have an allergy kit around. Okay, so maybe we should talk about ICG now. You want to talk about ICG? Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay. let's we'll do it. So okay. it's a, uh, the indocyanine green molecule is bigger, bigger than the fluorescein angiography fluorescein. Additionally, it's also bound by protein, but I'm not actually sure how that's distinct from fluorescein, which is also mostly protein bound. Isn't that right?
0: Yeah. So the difference is the ratio. So fluorescein mm. is about eighty percent bound by protein, yeah. and ICG is like ninety. It's above ninety five percent. I think it's like ninety nine percent bound by protein. So I the vast see. majority of it stays in the yeah bound to protein. Gotcha. It's still like a small molecule, but it's bigger, so it's bound to protein, so it doesn't leak out of the cortical circulation, mm-hmm. unlike a, unlike if it was an individual small molecule.
1: And and the other thing, fluorescein wasn't useful for visualizing the choroidal circulation, right? If right. you want to see the choroid, all of it, then yeah, do fluorescein. But if you just want the choroidal vasculature, then uh, ICG is your guy.
0: Right, right, exactly. And the other benefit of it is that it has a much longer wavelength, and that longer wavelength is not absorbed by the RP or that macular pigment. So these two things together make it perfect for seeing the choroidal vasculature. And that's, that's the point of doing ICG, is to look at the choroidal vasculature. So, you know, in modern clinical practice, there's actually only a few diseases that it's helpful in. So the way that at least I think about whether to order an ICG or not is, are any of these things on my differential? And what, so would this therefore be helpful um, for my differential? So, you, you know, that's why it's like not a, very com- not a very commonly done test. But well, we kind of break it down into two diseases that I think it's helpful for when looking at hypercyanescence. And then there's a, a category of diseases that's helpful for that will show No,
1: oh, It's fun. I'd never actually heard that term before. Cyanescence. Yeah, as opposed to
0: fluorescence. Fluorescence. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think like the textbooks call it fluorescence, but I think to avoid confusion, I like calling it cyanescence. So like cyanessing is not like a. It's not a physical thing that happens. Like ICG still fluoresces, but it may be easier. I, I've heard the term in other <laughs> contexts of sinyanescence. So That's like, cool. At least you can are, tell
1: what you're talking about on a test, like is is he talking about what shows on the FA or the ICG?
0: Right. Yeah, and I think talking about it's a little easier. but uh, yeah, yeah. but if you say hyperhypofluorescence with icg, you're 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 right. And physics people out there who hear me saying cyanessence, you can cringe, but I think Ret, it's easier to remember.
1: Ben is just accumulating so many enemies in this episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's worth it because this is an important topic. Retina <laughs>
1: attendings are after him. Uh, yeah, physicists <laughs> hate him. <'em. laughs>
0: okay, yeah, chemists hate him. Find out why in this episode.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe like a. One of what was it? Alvis might not like you talking about his coasting in his last year, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I the, the coasting thing was a bit of an embellishment.
0: So, uh, Dr. Alvis, if you're out there, I'm a huge fan. Um, and uh, I, I hope that, that I'm not horribly misinterpreting <laughs> what the history was there. And this is the real
1: reason why I stayed back for most of this
0: episode. It's all that Um But he didn't coast. He invented something that you know changed retina practice forever around the world. But anyways, anyways, <laughs> which is more than like you know my like psychiatry elective did for me. Well, I learned a lot in that elective. What, anyways, is hi- what uh, does
1: what does hypercytosis show? Hypercytosis.
0: So basically the two diseases that can be hypersenicens that I think are important to know about that fluorescein and OCT may not be as helpful in getting are polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy, which is something that I think also deserves this whole own episode. But it basically, it's something that can be easily confused for macular degeneration or even CSCR. Um, But it's important to differentiate it from macular degeneration because there's different treatments that are useful for it, like photodynamic therapy, which we can talk about in its own episode. And also, it can be helpful to differentiate CSCR from other diseases, too. You'll notice that these are both diseases that are on the, quote, pachychoroid spectrum of diseases. Another one that's on that spectrum is pachychoroid pigment epitheliopathy. So if you want to try to remember broadly, looking for hypercyanosis is helpful when you're thinking about pachychoroid diseases like CSCR and PCV. For hypocyanosis, basically... Most of the white dot syndromes can give you hypocyanescent spots that you will not see on FA, on fluorescein angiography. So if you are suspecting choroidal inflammation or like a white, possibly a white dot syndrome, where again, in these some of these syndromes, like in birdshot, you may see almost no color photo difference, no fluorescein angiography differences based on where you are in their disease course, then an ICG might be useful. So basically, if you have to remember anything, if your PCV is on your differential, or a white dot syndrome is on your differential, then think about getting an ICG. Can I get? Can I hit us with a quick summary, and then we can sign off? Yeah. This is a lot of material. Um. <laughs> okay, so to summarize the th- key things you remember from this episode: one, cats have an eye to arm time. Oh, sorry, paw to arm time of two seconds. 2, <laughs>
1: two <laughs> put that in the summary.
0: Two, uh, two, two. No, that's very important. Like from a life. Life perspective for people to know. Two, <laughs> the, the transit time from the arm to eye is eight to 12 seconds. Three, if you know these six things, then you can interpret FAs, and that's hyperfluorescence, of which there's four types leakage, staining, pooling, and window defect. And two, hypofluorescence, there's two things to know blocking and hypoperfusion. If you can tell between them, then you know everything you need to know about hypofluorescence. And three, ICG looks at the choroidal vasculature because it's a big boy that's attached to a big protein that won't leak, and its wavelength penetrates through RPE. And you're really looking for polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy or white dot syndromes, basically with ICG. We could have really just cut down this hour-long episode into like a minute.
1: <laughs> I kind of was entertained. This is your this is your baby.
0: This is I do like I love dye-based imaging um if you like dye-based imaging then you can follow us on twitter at eyes for ears with the number four
1: uh before i finish that uh closer i do want to throw you yet another curveball just uh-huh. because uh-huh. we've already spent an hour on this or so i'm curious what's another minute how do you feel about all these dye-based imaging compared to oct angiography? oh boy Just as a brief primer for, like, especially a first year wondering what the main differences of them are.
0: Okay, Um, that's a good point. So, OCTA, um, as the cool kids call it, it works completely differently from dye-based studies. Basically, it looks at what's moving in an OCT. And then based on that movement, it infers that that movement must be from red blood cells. And that's, so then identifies movement within OCT to be vasculature. And it can be, I mean, like look at some of the pictures, especially in like the research journals, like they look, these things can look gorgeous and give you like um, a good idea of what the structural vasculature looks like, but it doesn't, it doesn't give you the actual, what the actual movement of fluid looks like in the vasculature. Like right. it, it can't, because, you know, it doesn't look at like water bound molecules. It looks at much bigger things, just to red blood cells. You so can it can't am- tell you about leakage your standing, your pooling, or staining or pooling. It can't tell you like any of those six things that we talked about except hyperperfusion. Right. right, right. Yeah.
1: It's so like, whereas the dye based studies are essentially tracer studies, there's no actual tracer going on in an OCTA, which makes definitely. it more convenient. You don't have to, you know, get a nurse to inject anybody with anything, but mm-hmm. you, it's a little less. And true to life, right?
0: So. Exactly. It doesn't show you like activity. It just shows you structure, but not activity. Yeah, so so it think, can. Like, sh- a
1: question and these days yeah. is like how much can we get away with maybe just replacing FA with OCT angiography? And the answer, I think that all you retina docs are talking about is please don't replace it. Right.
0: <laughs> R- right. It. I mean. Right. There are a couple of scenarios like it can. So it can't show you that the CNV is like cradle neovascularization is leaking, but it can show you the cradle neovascularization. So in cases like that, it can be useful. Um, And if the clinical scenario looks like, oh, this is just a CNV that's leaking, then maybe that's enough. But it it, it can't completely. I mean, sorry, uh, Zeiss and like Heidelberg, you can, uh, you know. You can cut my royalty check this week, but no, it's That's okay. they hate me,
1: too, next week.
0: <laughs> oh, cool. Good. <laughs> Good. We'll both be hated. But, um, yeah, it's not the most. Um, yeah, it, it can be useful structurally, but we can. And honestly, just plain old OCT can, can you know, is the reason why FA is using, being used less and less nowadays because, you know, OCT can tell you disease activity just by showing where the leakage is in the, in the uh, you know, in the retina. So you don't have to FA someone all the time to see is there choroidal neovascularization still leaking or not. You can just do an OCT. So there is definitely decreased use of FA due to OCT. OCTA, though, I think it's still being uh, heavily researched to find utility for it.
1: All right. Sorry, okay. you can no, don't put that sorry. in. If you can take it out, or you can put it in wherever you want. No,
0: I think it's useful to talk about because I like. I think my whole first year as a resident, I had no idea what OCTA was. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, you know we didn't have it like in the consult suite or whatever, so it's like that was hey, like I
1: just three, four years ago. At that time, it was still just kind of coming out, anyway. Right? Yeah.
0: Do you feel old? We shouldn't feel old. We're still like ophthalmologic infants. I, um, no we're not Jasmine No, you're in a how old I am all the time oh oh geez uh, if you like what you heard <laughs> you can follow us on twitter at eyes4ears at number four
1: and our website is also eyes4ears.com with the number four also we have an instagram and a facebook all like that too
0: yeah and oh, if you'd like to support the podcast it helps us with that like search engine algorithmic juice if you give us a rating review on iTunes where we found our podcast, it's actually like really helpful for us. If if you like support us,
1: and also just to to show it, to demonstrate we do actually take everybody's comments very seriously. And a lot of people have been asking about when are we going to get some more peds topics there, but uh, but I am working on some pediatric strabismus things, and hopefully in the next month or so we'll be putting them out there. Sorry for
0: the long delay. But we will we will we'll get there
1: yes we Uh, we promise it's coming and we've heard your we've heard your suggestions it's coming
0: okay otherwise we'll see you next week bye
1: bye